I want to invite you to get your Bibles open. You must have your Bibles open. We are a people that preach, teach, believe, want to live the Word of God. So let's get your Bibles open. If you're using one from the pew, I think it's page 975. For the rest of us, Galatians chapter 5. And uh, if you do not own a Bible and you want a Bible, and if it's going to be used in your life, then take one from the back of that pew and consider that our gift for you to be able to get into God's Word. So let me ask you while you're opening up to Galatians chapter 5, what do you want people to say about you when you're no longer on this earth? Now that's not a very cheery question, is it? So let's change it just a little bit. What do you want people to say about you now while you're alive? I mean, if your life was to be summed up by somebody and they were to describe you to somebody else and they pull on the most central characteristic about you, what do you want that to be? I think the greatest statement that could ever be said about any of us is that that person loved well. I mean, think on that for a moment. Because right now you might be thinking, well, maybe that's not the one that I would have chosen. But I would argue that that's the greatest possible one. Because when you boil it all down to its most important essence, is there really anything more central to all of the Bible than love? I think that's really what's at the core of the gospel. So what I'm going to do in our journey in this Root to Fruit series as we go deep in order to grow up, I'm going to take us to verse 22. And we're going to now look at what the fruit of the Spirit is. So I'm going to answer for you, I'm going to try to at least, four questions. You know, something really discouraging happened this last week. Somebody uh, mentioned to me, came to the church, and it was just, a, you know, and, and it, it was an incidental conversation. And they mentioned to me, you know, your, your sermons are very complex, and that was actually discouraging. I'll tell you what I, I aim at every week. I want a dense sermon. I want a buffet plate for you. I want a buffet line for you that you cannot possibly get all of it in you. So that it will whet your appetite. Because just like Chinese food, listen, it fills you up fast and you get hungry again quickly. I want my sermons to do that for you as well. I want to fill you up. I want them to have density. I want you to have to chew on them because I want to get you beyond milk and I want to get you to the meat of the Word of God. I want us to love God's Word throughout the week. So what I'm going to do today in this message, nothing is complicated. Nothing is complex. All of it is simple, but it's dense. So I'm going to answer for you four questions. Here's the first. You ready? What is this fruit? Now let's just read it. Verse 22, Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is. What is this fruit? Now last week... We looked at what the desires of the flesh look like when they're all grown up. Now you got these desires in your heart, just like I do. And they look pretty innocent in baby form. Right? I mean, I just want a bigger paycheck. I just wish we had a larger house. But Paul begins to show you where your flesh wants to take that desire. If it's a desire of the flesh... You want to gratify it. And that word means you want to complete its goal. So he shows us what's that little innocent baby desire going to look like 
when it's full grown in its adult version. And he lists them in verses 19 through 21. He lists them, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. There's 15 of them. So if you ever want, now have you ever looked at it like this? If you ever want to build a character sketch or a character profile on Satan, you just got it given to you. This is what Satan looks like in his serial sinner character. This is what he looks like. If you want to know, well, I'm not really sure what Satan really wants. What's his goal? What does he do? Well, he does all 15 of these very, very well. And he stirs these desires up in every person. But all of a sudden, you get to the verse 22, and what, look at the first word of verse 22, the word but, which is actually a word in the Greek language. And what, the way it works is like the hinges on our doors. The hinges allow a closed door to become open or an open door to become closed. It's the same way that you flip a coin from heads to tails. So what Paul is doing, he says, listen, I just showed you where your flesh wants to go. I built for you a character sketch of Satan. Now I'm going to do something different. I'm going to show you the contrast. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, what on earth is this? What is this fruit? If you've been in our church for a while, you might remember that we finished up in October a look at the Sermon on the Mount. And that series began by looking at the Beatitudes. And do you remember what I said? Do you recall this, what I, how I explain what the Beatitudes are the Beatitudes, I said, are a look into the heart of Jesus. I mean, if you really want to know what Jesus is like, if you really want to know what God is like, then the Beatitudes describe him perfectly. And a connection, now listen, this is huge, and this is so far, I think, the most important thing I'm going to tell you so far. Have you ever noticed... By the way, this is a connection that, that is seldom made. Have you ever noticed that these virtues in Galatians 5, there's nine of them, in their perfection are beautiful, clear pictures of what the heart of God looks like? Friends, don't you want to know God so well that he becomes closer, Proverbs says, than your brother? That you hear his voice in your mind throughout the day, that verse that he brings to mind, that principle that he recalls for you, that you, when you're with people like James and, or like Peter and John, they know, hey, I think they've been with the Lord. You see, the first and foremost truth we learn from Paul's list of virtues is that this is exactly what God looks like. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's what He is, it's who He is, and it's what He's imparting in us. What He's imparting in us, and this is huge, you ready? If I were you, I would definitely write this down. What the Spirit of God is imparting in you, Christian brother and sister, what He's imparting in me, is the life and the character of Jesus Christ. He's just describing what Jesus looks like in His perfection. Nine views of it. 
And he's telling you this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is what he's putting in your life. The Spirit of God is putting the life of Jesus into you so that you become more and more exactly like him. But why, point number two, is it fruit and not fruits? Why is there no S at the end of fruits? There's nine of them, or nine virtues. I mean, go back to verse 19 in the list of devices. We saw that they were the plural, the works of the flesh. It's communicating that our flesh works. It strives, it strains. Now listen, this is huge. What's it striving and straining for? It's straining for the fulfillment of ourself. See, the desires of the flesh are all about me. It's all about you. It wants what I want. It wants to dominate other people. This is why Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, make the most of yourself, for that is all there is in you. Listen, this is the cry of the world. This is humanistic philosophy. The world says, be a better you. I don't want you to have a better Tim Ackley. You're not going to like him as your pastor. You want to have a better Jesus in Tim that is loving you and preaching to you and shepherding you. But Oprah is full of this, right? She's all about, hey, there is beauty, beauty inside of you. Be the better version of you. Well, the ultimate aim of the self-directed flesh, listen, is to give birth to sin. You've got to get this because what the Spirit of God is doing, he's unzipping the desires of the flesh so you can see them, so that I can see them the way they really look. The aim of the flesh is to give birth to sin, even if we don't understand or not even aware of it. And we're able to produce those deeds. We're able to do it in our own power. But the idea of straining and striving, look at verse 22, it is inexplicably absent. There is no strain. There is no striving in verse 22. It's not part of what the Spirit of God is doing saying, you know what, you got to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Let me give you an example of what that would mean, what that would look like. Now, I want you to look up here for a moment. I want you to picture that I'm standing on a five-foot length of two-by-eight board. And I've got a rope drilled through this end, and i got a rope through this end, and they're in my hands. And you have said to me, Tim, I want you to pull yourself up off the ground. And so I struggle, and I strain, and I pull with all of our might, but the law of physics is that the downward pressure is going to equal the upward pressure, and I can't get myself off the ground. Now, you might say, well, just jump. Well, that's equivalent to what we can all do. You know, you can kind of get victory over sin and sheer effort for about a week. You could jump. But if you want to live a life of freedom, if you want to live a life of victory, if you want to get off the ground and stay off the ground, well, that's impossible in your own effort. You cannot produce any of these nine in your own effort. You cannot do it by striving. You cannot do it by determining, I'm going to love more. I'm going to be more full of joy and a resolution for 2018. You have no power. I don't have any power in and of ourselves to produce any of these fruits. Paul makes it clear they must come by the Spirit of God. You know what it's like? I don't normally wear glasses. I had a cracked um, contact this last week, and it scratched my eyes. So I've been wearing glasses since then, pretty much. 
But it would be like wearing glasses and see that they're dirty and you even you know and your your fingers are full of sweat or maybe dirt and mud and you take your glasses off and you see the dirt and you start cleaning the glass lens with your fingers. And if you wear glasses like I do periodically, you know all it does is smudge and makes it worse. It's the same exact way of trying to clean up your own act in your own power. It does not work. It can never work. You see, this series is called Root to Fruit because the nine virtues that Paul lists in these verses are the result of the spirit that is rooted in the heart of the believer as he or she walks by the spirit. But the question we're trying to answer, if you look at your outline again, is why is it fruit and not fruits? It's really important to understand. The Greek language, by the way, very exciting, very, very complicated to learn. It has tenses to it, just like the English language, and I'm going to explain this to you. It's not fruits with an S. It's not plural like it was the works of the flesh. So when you think of fruit as a singular group, like a bowl of fruit, you tend to use the word fruit with no S on the end. I'll give you three more examples. You should eat five servings of fruit and vegetables every day. Our moms probably said something like that to us growing up. Another one is fruit is good for your health. A third one is there isn't much fruit, fresh fruit available in the winter. Listen, there's always, when we're using the word fruit in a singular collective sense, there's no S on it. That's true for English, it's true for the Greek. But if you want to bring out and emphasize the different kinds of fruit, rather than the bowl of fruit, then you put an S on it. So here's some examples. My three favorite fruits are bananas, melons, and strawberries. Here's another one. This juice is made from a variety of fresh fruits. Do you see what I'm saying? When you want to emphasize the individual, you use the plural for fruits which is fruits. When you want to emphasize the singular, the collective, the body, you use the singular fruit with no S. See, Paul's not emphasizing the different kinds of fruits. He's emphasizing the bowl of fruit. And it's like, I'll give you another way to understand it. It's like a farmer bringing the harvest in. And that harvest is corn, alfalfa, hay, soybeans there's a lot of products but it's one harvest there's not the farmers bringing the harvests in it's the harvest it is singular so let me give you even one more way to explain the difference when the the spirit of god listen christian this is awesome the moment you put your faith in jesus the spirit of god dwelled inside of you he adopted you he sealed you that is permanent covenantal language but when he came inside of you he gave to you a gift of the Holy Spirit, or it could have been more than one. There's gifts of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you have two, maybe you have three. Listen, all those are, and wonderfully what they are, are divine spirit-powered enablements to do everything that God is going to call you to do. So if God has something for you to do, he's already gifted you for it. So you can never say, well, God wants me to do this, but you know, I don't think I'm able to do it. That's not true. If he's called you to do it, he's given you the gifts in order to do it. So while the Spirit of God gives gifts to believers, and he wants us to exercise them, he only wants us to exercise the fruit all nine of them. What does that actually look like? 
well, you might be full of love. You might be a really loving person. And you might be really joyful. But man, you're bombing it in self-control. And you're saying to yourself, well, that's all right. Man, I've got seven out of nine clicking, man. I'm golden. God is good. He's happy with me. That's not true, actually. This is singular. If there's a trait not working, there's a problem. And the Spirit of God is addressing it. He wants all nine virtues because all of them are the bowl of fruit. And I'm going to give you even a little bit better way of understanding it. There is one fruit, right? This is huge. There is one fruit, there is one harvest, here it is. It's the character of Jesus. Do you understand that? He's saying, he's not saying rather, that I want to produce a lot of peace in you. But the other ones, uh, maybe later, if ever. He's not saying that. He wants to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self. He wants all of them produced in you. Why? Because they are the character of Jesus. As he is imparting the life of Jesus and the character of Jesus so that you look more like Jesus, you're going to have all nine in your life. And here's the really good news. Romans 8 9 says the whole Godhead is in the process. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God, that's the Father, dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, the third person of the Trinity, does not belong to him. Listen, the entire triune God is at work in every Christian to cultivate all of these fruits so that you look more like Jesus. And that's an awesome, hope-inspiring belief. He's not saying to you, he's not saying to me, I saved you, now figure out how to love. I saved you, listen, the joylessness, it's your fault. You've got to figure out how to get joy in your life. He's saying, I saved you, I set you free from the power and the penalty and the guilt of sin, and I saved you and gave you freedom for a life of love, for a life of living out these virtues and i'm going to help you do it but there's a third question that i think we need to answer why is love first in this heading or in this group i mean it heads a list right love joy peace patience why is it first that matters every word matters in the word of god and even the order of the words matter they're put there strategically and intentionally it's the greatest of the nine love is the foundation of all of them. Really what that means is this. If you're not a very patient person, honestly, the problem is you're not a very loving person. And if you don't have a lot of joy in your life, the problem is you have a deficit of love. And if you're struggling with self-control, the problem is you're really struggling with a lack of love. Love makes the other eight work. It's the fountain for all of them. We've been set free from the power of sin. We've been set free for a life of love. Now, what is love? And that's a really important question to answer. What does this word actually mean? Well, it's the Greek word agape. 
Do you know that this is a word that really was not in much existence at all in Greek society until the New Testament? The New Testament writers dusted this antiquated word off and they breathed new life into it. And they adapted it for the love of God. It's the, it's the love of God. Here's what it is. It describes, I'm going to define it. It describes the deliberate effort to seek only what is best for others, even for those who seek the worst for us. It's the love for enemies. It's the love for everyone. It's the love that God has displayed towards sinners. It's the uh, love that he's displayed for the ungodly, for those who war against him. For God loved us, the Bible said, even while we were yet at enmity or at conflict with him. It's God's love displayed in us. It's a love that we display toward others. But that's not enough, so i got to give you a little bit more. This love moves towards those who don't deserve it. It moves towards those who are utterly unworthy of it. It's a love that has no selfishness. Listen, if you picture a compass that's pointing to true north, well, our, the flesh of our desires always points to true you, to true me. This love has no compass needle on yourself. It's always swung to God, and it's always swung to other people. It is completely directed outside of ourselves to others. Now listen, this is huge. This is a complete redefinition of love against the standards of our world. It is not emotional love. Oh, we're so used to saying, I love you because the emotions are swirling in us. There's no swirling of emotions in agape love. It's a love that you choose whether you feel like it or not. And this is so important, I'm going to say it again. This is a love that you must determine to display. Now, this is, I think, very interesting. There are actually four Greek words for love. And the world, an unbeliever, can live three of them. There's friendship love, that's phileo. This is, ironically, disastrously why it's called Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. I don't get it. The football team is horrible. Should be the Cowboys in the playoffs. So unbelievers can experience friendship love. Now, you're going to get this one. Unbelievers can experience eros, which is sexual love. And unbelievers can experience a third one, which is a love of a parent to a child. But only, now listen, this is critically important, only, only believers can experience agape love. Why? Because it belongs to God. God is love. It is his property. He gives it to his people. The world and the unbeliever cannot have it. There's nothing in them to love this way. Romans 5.5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts. That's his agape love through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I've defined it for you. Agape love is incredibly determined. It's a choice. It's directed to those who don't even deserve it, even those who don't love us. But what's it look like? Well, you probably need to go to 1 Corinthians 13, which has been hijacked and forced into every wedding done since it was written. But it wasn't really made for weddings. It's on, by the way, my ring inscribed in the center of it or in the inside of the band. But it really is not meant for just marital love. It's really, 1 Corinthians 13, meant for you and for me in every single relationship we have. 
And instead of just reading it, which would be marginally effective, I'm going to ask you to do a little exercise with this. Instead of the word love, I'm going to ask you to put your name in it, and I'll do it for me. In fact, I'll read it that way, and I will guarantee you, as I've already done it, it is incredibly painful. You ready? Tim Ackley is patient and kind. Man, I already failed. Tim does not envy or boast. Mm. Tim is not arrogant or rude. Tim does not insist on its own way. If you're a board member, you know I'm not doing real well. Tim is not irritable or resentful. Tim does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Okay, I think I've got this one. thanks, Thanks to God's grace. Oh, I'm all right in that one. Tim rejoices with the truth. Oh, I definitely am solid on that one. Tim bears all things. Oh, boy, I'm back down again. Tim believes all things. Tim hopes all things. Tim endures all things. Tim's love never ends. Man, I tell you what, that is painful. I kind of guess it was for you as well. This is what the Spirit of God is doing. This is why we've been set free, to be able to put our name into this list and by God's grace go, I'm learning by the help of the Spirit and by His transformation to live this way. How? All right, if you scored low on that one, the last question is one that you're probably hungering for. You're already asking, how do we grow in love? How do we grow in this agape love? Well, Paul gives the key. So I want to I show you, and by the way, it'll take me all 11 weeks to answer this question. It's an 11-week series. I'm going to trickle it in week after week. But Paul answers the question. So look in chapter 5, start at verse 16, and just glance down to verse 26. We need to walk by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit, verse 18. Verse 25, live by the Spirit. Verse 25, keep in step with the Spirit. Verse 22, fruit of the Spirit. Listen, this is how you study the Bible. This is how you let the Bible come alive. When you see a pattern, you take note of it. If I were you, I'd be underlining these. This is the key to growing the fruit of the Spirit. If you want more love, which you ought to, because the triune God is putting that desire in you, if you want more love to be displayed in your life, then the key is the Spirit of God. But there's a misunderstanding about the Ten Commandments that I need to clear up, and I believe Galatians was written to clear this up. In fact, you could extrapolate this misunderstanding of the Ten Commandments to the entire law of God. There's a lot of Christians that believe that the law was awful. That now that we live in New Testament grace, good riddance to the Old Testament law. And I don't even want to look at it again. And they've they've come to believe that the law of God is right now irrelevant to the Christian that is locked into the dust of the Old Testament. The truth, Christian, is that the Ten Commandments called the moral law, and you can say about the entire law of Moses, you can put it all into a big pot and put it on boil and let it distill down to its essence, and the essence is going to have one name, love. The entire law was written to help us love. 
I can't be any more clear than Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest, or the first, rather, the great and first commandment. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He just threw all the law, all of the prophetic utterances, threw them all in one pot and boiled them down and said, this is it, love. Love God, love your neighbor. And both is agape. I mean, come on, just think with me how unthinkable would it be that now that we live in the age of grace because Jesus died for us, now we can murder now we can worship another God. Now it's okay to covet. Now it's not a big deal to lie. We can commit any sin we want with freedom. We're under grace. That's just unthinkable. Every single one of the Ten Commandments would be broken if we withhold love. Now let me put it on the other way of saying that. Not one of the Ten Commandments would be broken if we were perfectly displaying love. Every one of them works in order to love. See, Christ's freedom that we gained through his death and resurrection, friends, it was the freedom from the penalty, guilt, and power of sin, but the freedom of the gospel has a from and a for. We are free for loving God and others more than ourselves. That's the aim of the gospel. It is to save us and get us into a life of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves, to tell the truth rather than lie, to worship God rather than an idol, to keep his name holy and not take it in vain, to be generous rather than covet. Jesus gained our freedom. The Spirit of God enables us to live it. I love what Erwin Lutzer said. He's one of my favorites. The Holy Spirit is not given to those who have it all together spiritually. He is given to enable us to get it together spiritually. Amen? The Spirit of God floods our hearts with new desires as we walk with him, root to fruit, heart to life. Because life change comes from heart change as we walk by the Spirit. I want you to remember something that uh, our freedom, I'm going to say it over and over, is from the penalty and the guilt and the power of sin. And it is for a life to love. And I want you to see where you can see that in Galatians. So go to verse 13. This is really what formed the thesis of this entire sermon series. Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. It's only the Christian. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And here it is. But through love, serve one another. So if you want to understand this, you circle the word freedom and then you draw an equal sign or a definition. What is that freedom? It is the ability to love and display it through serving one another. Now, I want to end. It's going to take me a few minutes to do it. But I want to end, now that I've defined it for you, what agape love is, that I showed you how to evaluate and assess your own self, 1 Corinthians 13, now I want to show you what it's looking like right now in action in this church. See, love being produced in our hearts by the Spirit of God. Listen, it's what motivates dozens of volunteers every single Monday 
to serve in Riverside ministry, feeding, clothing, encouraging people in need. It is agape love that is the motivating power for them so that people of color, people of every walk of life, people in every situation imaginable find that they're welcome here, that they're cared for here, and they can see the gospel here. Did you know that not one person, listen, not one single person that serves in Riverside is on our payroll? They're not getting paid. They're motivated not by a check. They're motivated by love. It's agape love that motivates a team of men, women, and teens to use their Fridays six weeks at a time, twice a year, to go to Chesson School and love children with the gospel. It's what motivates the Restoring Hope ministry bike team. I did this, I know what I'm talking about when I describe this, to painfully ride hundreds of miles on a bicycle seat with exhausted legs. Why? So that churches can hear about the suffering in Dungu, Democratic Republic of the Congo. What motivates them? It's love. It's what motivates ministries like Bright Hope in the Lehigh Valley to work tirelessly to save the lives of the most vulnerable demographic in all of the world, unborn babies. You don't get more vulnerable than that. It's love that moves people to resign from their secure jobs to go to another country to bring the hope of the gospel to a people that they've never even met. It's love that makes us willing to step into the suffering of other people, to patiently listen to them, no matter who they are, and then do what we can to help. But agape love has a strategy. And as important as everything I just said to you about how it's being displayed in our church right now, this is as important. In fact, it's the foundational importance. It is agape love that does more than perform social activities. For the deepest problem of every suffering sinner is a separation from God. It's their future eternity in hell. And agape love cannot settle for that. It must do what we can. And what we can is more than serving meals. It's more than clothing the poor. It's more than getting the unemployed jobs. It's more than championing social justice. Listen, all of these are important. All of these are beautiful. But the ultimate need of every person is to be saved. It's the central importance and motivation of the gospel. It's why Jesus said at the end of Mark in the city of Capernaum, the town of Capernaum, when there's more people that are looking for him, more demon-possessed, more sick people, I need healing, I need deliverance, and Jesus tells his disciples, let us move to the next town, for I came to preach, I did not come centrally to do this. See, the ultimate center of the gospel is salvation, and it finds its expression and the initiatives of the gospel. I mean, would it really be loving to give a starving child a meal but not hold out the bread of life? It is incompatible to agape love to help 
without holding out the gospel of life. Now listen, it is incomplete to the gospel to proclaim its message without helping to relieve their suffering. They go together. The utter importance is the prime mover of the preaching of the gospel, the salvation of souls, and the expression of it for the saved people to love deliberately, to make a choice to display God's love to them. You see, the Spirit of God, friends, is producing in us nine fruit virtues. Listen which are all together a description of the character of Jesus. And the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all aim to cultivate this fruit in us. And the foundation virtue of all of them is love, which is the deliberate effort to seek only the best in others, regardless of who they are. And we've been set free from the penalty and the power and the guilt of sin and, and set free for a life of loving God and loving people. So really, the best way to end, I think, this message is just to ask you to look inside. First of all, have you been set free by the power or by the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Have you come to him exclusively? Not try to take Jesus plus self-help, Christianity plus humanism. Jesus alone, the only way, the only life, the only truth, the way to the Father, the gates. Have you come to Jesus exclusively and said, the law showed me I'm a sinner. The law showed me you're perfect. The law showed me I can't clean my act up. My lenses are dirty and I'm smearing them and making them worse. I can't get my feet off the ground with a board. The law gets you morally bankrupt. You read the Bible, you realize I'm not a very good person. God is perfect. I'm really not like him and I don't have a way to make myself like him. And the very moment that God gets you to moral bankruptcy, you see there's a new bank that you can draw unlimited funds from. It's the bank of the gospel. It's the one where Jesus deposited untold riches through his death. Enough forgiveness for everybody that would turn to him. And from that bank, you could start cashing checks. God has forgiven me. He has paid for my sin. He has set me free from the power of sin for a reason. So that I get on mission, that I begin to love. Which is the entire summary of the law. So it's really good as we end this message to take stock. Have I come to Jesus and experienced salvation? And if I haven't, why wouldn't you? Your eternal destination is at stake. And God loves you with irresistible love. But if you have... Then now the step is, am I walking by the Spirit? And it's the evidence of that walk being displayed in agape love. The deliberate, choice-driven, conscious decision. I will love you no matter who you are, what you have done to me. I will love you because God's love is poured into my heart. And it seeks a display. Are you doing well with that? If not, comes confession and repentance, and a walking by the Spirit. If so comes, God, thank you for your grace. Increase my love. Let it be on display, and may you get the glory.
Amen.